What's up, everybody? I'm Cliff Seal, and this is Mastering B2B Email, an exploration of what America's greatest jazz musicians can teach us about mastery, perseverance, and collaboration, specifically for B2B marketers. One important note before we get started, every bit of research and data that I cite in this discussion has a verified source and I've personally ensured that each one of them is reasonably trustworthy. Solid research methodology, ample data, and logical conclusions. You can find every source for yourself by going to cliffseal.com podcast. You should be critical of every conclusion and underlying data point presented by anyone. And I encourage you to do the same to me. Feel free to contact me directly if you have any questions. So let's dive in, starting with a story. In January of 1975, Keith Jarrett, an acclaimed jazz pianist, was scheduled to perform at the Köln Opera House in Germany. He'd sold out the entire venue. Everyone was obviously really excited. He had just performed in Zurich, Switzerland a couple of days before that. And at that time, it wasn't really feasible for him to be hopping planes between tour dates. So it was a long car ride between the two. He was apparently really exhausted from it. Uh, He had a lot of back pain and was wearing a brace. So he already wasn't in a great spot. Unfortunately, his troubles did not end there. After his arrival, and just a few hours before the performance was scheduled to start, he found out a pretty important detail had been missed. He'd requested a very specific grand piano, as you do when you're an acclaimed jazz pianist, but there had been a pretty serious mix-up. The Opera House crew saw a piano by the same brand backstage, and they thought that it was the one that he requested. Spoiler alert, it was not. Unfortunately, there were some pretty serious problems with it too, just beyond the fact that it wasn't the right piano. It was a much smaller baby grand piano. It was severely out of tune. The upper and lower registers were thin and tinny. And the pedals, a pretty critical part of the piano, didn't work at all. So you've got an exhausted and in pain Keith Jarrett staring at a sold-out performance starting in a matter of hours, knowing he doesn't even have a decent piano to play, and that's the whole concert. Keith Jarrett and his piano, that's it. That's what everyone was there to see. So naturally, he nearly refused to play. But famously, he decided to do something different. He decided to go ahead with the concert, and he's just going to use the piano he's got. He proceeds to improvise the entire concert on the spot, playing around the constraints of that small, broken, out-of-tune piano. He focuses on the middle of the piano to avoid those upper and lower registers that didn't sound right. He uses a technique called vamping to compensate for the lack of a sustain pedal. He was able to completely tailor the concert to this incredibly difficult and odd situation, leaving the audience with a truly once-in-a-lifetime experience. Even more incredibly, it wasn't just that it was a unique concert experience because of its constraints. It was so masterfully done that the recording from that night would go on to become the greatest-selling piano album of all time, and it's still the greatest-selling solo jazz album of all time. This monolithic record was made from an exhausted piano player on a broken, out-of-tune instrument with practically no time to prepare for it. That's what mastery looks like. 
And though most of us can never expect to experience that depth of expertise and command of our bodies like that, the evolution of jazz greats like Keith Jarrett here illuminate a path to achieving our goals and overcoming obstacles, because the way that they achieved greatness is something that we can emulate in the way that we connect with other human beings emotionally to deliver a unique personal experience time after time. And after all, isn't that what successful marketing is actually supposed to be? What is marketing if it's not consistently unique personal connection about things that actually do matter? And so after nearly a decade of having the privilege of studying and talking to B2B marketers and consuming countless research papers and case studies, a pattern emerges that connects high-performing marketers with exceptionally great jazz musicians like Keith Jarrett. And you won't just have to take my word for it. Like I mentioned, every number, every case study we discussed today has a citation and uses a source that I've personally looked into, and I encourage you to do the same. One piece of research I'll use heavily contrasts high-performing marketers, so those that are able to achieve the results that they want intentionally, with those who feel less certain and less successful. These high performers in marketing follow a similar path to greatness as these musicians will talk about, and we'll break that down into three specific sections of mastery. Mastering the instrument, mastering comping and improvisation, and mastering mantras. So let's start with mastering the instrument. The story of Keith Jarrett's situational improvisation, becoming a world-renowned recording, gave us a glimpse into what this could look like. So let's talk about B2B email as an instrument to know deeply, flaws and all. It's just a way to communicate, but how can we understand everything we need to know about how it works? How do marketers get to know email as a tool like this and as an instrument, and how do they learn what it's capable of? Well, it turns out that they test, but they test email in a very specific way. Now, Thelonious Monk once said, all musicians are subconsciously mathematicians. It's been my experience that great marketers tend to be as well. They're not overwhelmed by raw data, and they're willing to act on the patterns that they discover and trust it. But what the high priest of Bop is pointing out in that quote is also a caution because an instrument isn't a math equation. All that math is in the theory, in the writing, in the performance, in the connection between the human and the instrument itself. And so similarly, we often see features like email A-B testing marketed as this kind of magical feature that helps you passively optimize your email by taking a small measurement and then extrapolating out the results across a single email send. Like when you decide what a subject line is going to look like for 70% of your audience based on what the first 30% of your audience did. Instead, what we've seen time after time is that high-performing marketers are using email testing to create benchmarks. They treat testing as a way to continually increase their own understanding of their own audience. So, for instance, instead of seeing what the first 30% of your recipients would do with an email and then making an automatic decision based on that, high-performers are more often seeing what 
100% of their recipients do with that same email. Obviously, the more data points you have, the more safely you can draw conclusions from the patterns that you see. And so high performers are continually testing how different segments of their audience respond to different variables like type of email, subject line, day of the week, time of day. So let me show you how this works with a case study. At Vault, an HR technology company shared in a case study that they were able to get five times more unique opens by personalizing the subject line with the install technology of the recipient as opposed to only personalizing the subject line with their first name. And sure, obviously, more relevant personalization tends to increase engagement. But there's something critical to note in this case study, and that's that they first did basic testing around day of the week, time of day, and the from address of the email. They tested their existing database enough to know whether their audience responds to a given variable or not. So when they ran the test that saw the unique opens go up by 5x when they personalized the subject line with install technology, they managed to avoid the false positives that you often see when marketers start testing personalization. See, you can't know what makes an email test successful unless you have a reliable baseline to compare it to. And that's even assuming that the email test itself was well-designed, which is a whole other conversation. Otherwise, when you hear that someone says personalization increased our open rate, when you see that headline on a Medium article, you actually have a lot of questions to ask before you know whether that's the case, even inside the case study you're looking at. You need to know what was personalized, how tailored was the email, did they change more than one variable in the test, and crucially, has the company ever sent anything personalized before? Because a company who's never sent anything except generic newsletter email blasts is obviously going to get a boost the first time they use something basic like a first name in the subject line. That doesn't mean it works better long term, and it doesn't mean that that first test is something reliable for you to base your decisions on going forward. Now I'm going to give you several suggestions to try in your own organization to apply these ideas. I want to help you make progress in the forms of mastery that we're going to talk about. So to start with, I want to encourage you to do something. Run at least one statistically significant email test every month. You don't need to worry about sending to the winner. It's not a feature like that. You're not doing this to get free metrics out of your email. You're doing it to get real reliable results for you to look at and understand. Now, if you're not sure what a statistically significant email test looks like for your organization, with no sarcasm, I encourage you to just Google statistically significant email A-B test. I've looked at the results myself. I, I'm not joking with you. There are some really great resources there that allow you to use calculators and other simple ways of viewing the math equations necessary to understand what statistical significance looks like for you. Once you know what that looks like, then start testing. Day of the week, time of day, subject lines, emojis, whatever. Just make sure you only change one thing at a time. This is about getting the right data that creates a reliable data set for you to make smarter decisions on. Like AppVault, you'll be able to test things like personalization much more reliably and see better results when you start to have baselines. 
Getting results when you personalize an email is crucial. 89% of B2B buyers say that they expect companies to understand their business needs and expectations, according to a Salesforce research study. Now, that seems insurmountable, and to be frank with you, it is. It's unreasonable for nearly 90% of B2B buyers to expect companies to understand this, especially when we're in a time where maintaining and retaining data is becoming increasingly difficult and people want control over their data. There's a whole other conversation to have about that as well. That's okay. We can accept that reality and instead just make positive progress in the right direction. How do you get from where you are now to something closer to making sure that 90% of your buyers are feeling understood? Well, it turns out the same way that you make progress as a high-performing marketer is the same way that a musician becomes great at their instrument. They practice until they want to vomit, quit, and never look at the instrument again. Then you go to sleep, you wake up the next day, and you do the whole thing again day after day. As a former music student in college, I can promise you that this is what progress looks like with an instrument. And so what does that look like when email is your instrument? How do you go through that cycle of practicing and starting again the next day? Well, it turns out the way that you do that is to find a way to send more email. That's what high-performing marketers are doing. They are literally sending email more often than you. They're practicing more and more until sending a great email becomes second nature. Best practices are internalized. Testing benchmarks are common understandings. Critically, though, they're not blasting their email base more they're segmenting their database and creating new opportunities to send tailored emails more often. They're testing, they're learning, and they're repeating. In some internal user experience research with B2B marketers, we found that high performers move from thinking about the tactics of their marketing like email, landing pages, trade shows, and eventually they start thinking primarily about segments. They start thinking about the divisions of people that they can move through a funnel and make impact with. As marketers get better, they begin to more easily uncover potential segments and they automatically know how to start matching the messaging to them based on how they're segmenting them. Honestly, it's uncanny how fast a B2B marketing expert can think through the potential segments in a campaign to meet a goal. Now, one of the most common ways that they're segmenting is by behavior. So let me give you a couple of case studies that can help. Here's a pretty straightforward way that behavior-based segments and tailored content can work together. Adeco, in their case study, talked about stopping blasting people who weren't engaging with their emails and moving them into a separate program in which these people who weren't engaging were being specifically targeted. 
So they moved out the people who weren't engaging with the email in a reasonable amount of time. They put them in their own segment and then they said, okay, our new goal is to get reactivation out of this segment. So how do we do that? Well, first they knew what they wanted to get out of it and then they applied targeted personas. Then they applied sales stages and marketing stages to that segment to try to further tailor within that group of people to get them to reactivate. Over 90,000 in their database started engaging again, and they claimed their year-to-year opportunities increased by 115%. And so not only was it a huge success in their opinion, but something comes out of this when you create this segment based on behavior. It frees you up to focus separately on the people who are already engaging with your brand. That's a fringe benefit of what Adeco got out of creating this segment where they put people who weren't responding. Think about that. It means you get to identify the people who do respond to your brand and think more deeply about how to engage them further. Please do this. Please reward the people who do respond to your messaging. All of this inside of the case study and the other case studies we see, they build on best practices and a clear set of key performance indicators, right? This is why it helps to think about B2B email like an instrument, because there's no way around the fact that you can't do the advanced stuff. You can't get the huge metrics unless you commit to practicing the art of sending an email over and over. All of the emails in the case study they mentioned still had to be well-designed, well-written, and well-executed for it to matter. Now, there's another case study that's too good not to throw in, honestly. It shows you how internalized best practices and rapid testing and focusing on a particular segment can have these huge payoffs. So a company called Ramp, who makes t-shirts, shared in their case study that they decided to send cold emails about t-shirts. Honestly, that's not the most promising start, right? That's a pretty crowded segment, and cold emails already have a tough time making it through and getting anything done. And yet, through this campaign, they said that they had a 25% click-through rate, a 50% open rate, and 90% of the replies that they got to this email were positive. That is an unheard of set of metrics for a cold email, especially about something common and generic like a t-shirt. how they do it? Well, here's how it played out. First of all, they show in their case study exactly how they structured this cold email. I encourage you to grab the link to the case study and pull it up because you can see, you can literally see how much of a mastery of best practices they have. They understand how to send a great cold email already. There's no way around knowing how to build one of these well. But even inside of that specific effort, they used rapid testing and iteration to further optimize the particular parts. And so in this cold email, one key part that they decided to include was an image of the recipient's company logo superimposed on a t-shirt. Now, that's a pretty manual process, so they wanted to make sure it was going to work before putting in all of the effort to scale something like that. So... First, they manually photoshopped 50 company logos onto a picture of a model wearing a t-shirt, and they included those in the first batch. They felt like it worked well, so they scaled it. They started testing on stock photos and animated GIFs in a form of an automated process where they could really start cranking these out. 
as they continued to test, what they ended up landing on was a picture of the CEO of Ramp wearing a shirt with the recipient's company logo superimposed on it. The email itself was sent as a from address from the CEO of Ramp, and the subject line was personalized. And so you can start to see how all of these things come together. Another critical part that I want to point out is that they tracked replies and sentiment of the replies as a metric to help them understand how their cold email was doing. And honestly, that's really priceless. It turned out that replies and sentiment were honestly really amazing. They were getting responses to their cold email with pictures of employees at the recipient company who had taken the time to make a shirt with the picture of the Ramp CEO wearing their company shirt on it, taking a picture and then sending it back as a reply. It is incredibly meta, and it's also incredibly insightful because these replies were often coming from people who definitely didn't want to buy from them. They even got a positive reply from a company that could already print their own t-shirts. That's how you know something's successful. The number of people who would buy based on a cold email shouldn't be the only metric to help guide you in what's working and what's not. So allowing replies and then tracking the actual sentiment of those replies was another helpful qualitative way for them to figure out what works inside of a cold email. So try this. Divide your biggest email list or your broadest current segment into three new segments based on behavior. Slice and dice it however you want, but it should be based on recent engagement or lack thereof. Come up with key performance indicators for each segment and then tailor content to them based on your segment criteria and what you think will actually get you your KPIs. Track it and see what you learn. As an added benefit, segmenting this way will help you get clearer metrics with the audience that's already engaging with you because they won't be all mixed in with the people who aren't. This way, you don't have to lift an email that's only getting a 10% open rate. You can focus on the people who are normally opening your email and getting them to engage further in the way that they want to, and you can focus on getting other people to open your email and think about your company at all. Make this process of segmenting, tailoring, and testing a regular habit, and you'll see the results. That's mastery of the instrument. Miles Dewey Davis began playing the trumpet as a youngster in St. Louis. At the age of 17, Davis was hired for his first real gig, when most of us were definitely not doing anything like we could call a first real jazz gig. Just a year later, Davis was able to play with two of his idols, bebop pioneers, saxophonist Charlie Parker, and trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie. Later, Miles Davis was accepted into Juilliard and moved to New York, a huge honor. But classic, he never really made it to the classroom and spent much of his time on 52nd Street listening to Diz and Bird at the local club. Miles Davis jumped at the opportunity to replace Dizzy Gillespie in Charlie Parker's band, and this was despite the fact that Charlie Parker's speed and technique were well beyond a young Miles Davis at the time. So for Miles, it was both a dream come true and a nightmare of technical challenges. You can hear in Miles Davis's recordings from that time that he was much more tentative, often took a major backseat to Parker's powerful style. 
But the skills and sense of time that Davis developed during that period paid off as he went on to become one of the most well-known jazz musicians of all time. See, Miles Davis jumped into the deep end of what we call comping and improvising when he took the gig with Charlie Parker. Comping in jazz just refers to accompanying others while they're improvising. This duality maps out how high-performing marketers work with other departments and their customers to align on goals, increasing relevance for everyone. Through mastering comping and improvising, you can improve the way you work with others to amplify email's effect. Oscar Peterson once said, It's the group sound that's important, even when you're playing a solo. You not only have to know your own instrument, you must know the others, and you must know how to back them up at all times. That's jazz. Now, it's easy for B2B marketers to get tunnel vision on the email that just the marketing department is sending out, or to only think about marketing and sales alignment, for instance. But let's talk about this idea of the group sound, because that's what's really important. It's the collection of experiences your customers are having with all of your company's email, regardless of who's sending it, that matters. It's critical to understand this customer context, whether you're supporting others in their email campaigns or improvising something tailored for a particular segment yourself. So let me show you how this plays out. Gallup studied 19,000 B2B business units and found that those with high customer engagement scores across the life cycle generated 50% higher revenue, 63% lower attrition, and a 33% increase in the likelihood of being the first choice of future business. Now again, that's high customer engagement across the entire life cycle, not just when they're a lead that hasn't bought yet. Now, this correlation between higher revenue, lower attrition, and more likely to be the choice of future business is way more pronounced in B2B than B2C contexts. The reason is probably because there's rarely a single decision maker in B2B solutions. And so engaging these individuals requires deeper relevance and better personalization. And also because buyers aren't always the end users or consumers. There's a lot of people to keep up with across the customer lifecycle, and your internal collaboration is what drives the success of that personalization. What we've seen in Salesforce research is that high-performing marketers are primarily concerned with creating a single shared view of the customer, while others are primarily worried about things like their budget or the tools that they have or the staff that they have. It's a mindset shift that necessarily results in collaboration. Because here's the thing, it's actually not about your constraints. It's not about your lack of budget or your lack of a new email sending tool or your lack of a team. Those things can help you, sure, but that's not the pattern that we're seeing when marketers become high-performing and are able to achieve the outcomes that they want intentionally. It's all about maximizing what you have now and coordinating messages across channels and across experiences throughout the entire customer lifecycle. Now, when we talk about a single shared view, it's a really specific and important phrase. The single part means that you're learning from others to get more information. You only have 
one view, but the shared part means that you support others in their execution because messaging has to be connected from the very first touch all the way through creating loyalty in a customer advocate. See, like Miles Davis did, you're going to have to be a little bit uncomfortable as you try to imitate high-performing marketers. Because according to Salesforce State of Marketing Research, they're 3.7 times more likely to be very satisfied with their collaboration with other departments. So this is a scenario in which you can do that thing where you start acting as if you already feel a way. So start acting as if you already feel very satisfied with your collaboration. I'll give you some practical tips to apply these principles then of comping and improvising to get you there. Now let's talk about collaboration. You may have approached this in the past as if marketing or sales or some team between the two of you should be coaching everyone else who sends out email or does something connected to your company brand and that you're in charge of controlling the entire customer experience. Instead, consider supporting before you lead to gain the trust of those around you and to get in more practice with your instrument. Again, think of it as comping. You're accompanying others as they take the lead on communication with another part of the customer lifecycle, whether that's sales, support, renewals, partners, whatever. When departments work together, they form that group sound that OP was talking about. That singular sound is supporting one another's effort. Now, this is certainly easier if all of your email is coming from a singular platform that records the entire customer experience across the lifecycle. So leverage those types of tools and consider them if you don't have them already. It's not the thing that's keeping you from being a high performer, but it could definitely help. It will enable you to start tracking higher level metrics like likelihood to close or lifetime value. And you can start applying what you learn further down the life cycle earlier in the life cycle when you're able to do that. But regardless of technology, supporting others in terms of email means helping other departments get better at sending email and getting the results that they need. So try this. If you're in marketing, try approaching sales or support or another part of the organization that sends emails to your customers. Help them come up with new ways to achieve their goals with email. Let their goals be yours and channel your creativity. This is a much better path to collaboration than demanding that others follow your lead without an existing trusting relationship. Plus, you can teach others to improvise, and improvisation is key when you're combining personalization with automation. Let's talk about that. Improvisation in jazz is all about letting the moment speak for itself, right? You take your knowledge of the instrument, you overlay it with everything that's been done in the song so far, and then you let it rip. It's pure creativity. With email, your biggest opportunities to create a moment with a customer come when you're automating off their behavior in real time because your customer is telling you in some of these important moments that they're listening right then. See, high-performing marketers trigger personalized email in real time based on behavior. Engaging with your customers in real time when they're ready to listen is part of what makes it personalized. So high performers are 2.3 times more likely to trigger these personalized emails in real time based on user interaction. Now, I'll give you an example of one of the most effective types of real-time personalized email, the welcome email. 
Clearbit shared in their case study that they used to send a more generic welcome email to anyone who signed up for their freemium product. This was already better than not sending a welcome email because there are endless case studies showing you that this is a very effective trigger for more engagement. It's the first moment that someone trusts you enough to give you their email address. But for Clearbit, the customers who were signing up had these distinct roles, sales, marketing, and engineering, that weren't represented in that welcome email because Well, the recipient's role was obscured through the fact that they only had the email address and the welcome email itself was one size fits all. So they did something about it. They used their own product, which pulls in data about companies and people, to create a system of like 70 conditions that inferred job role, things like title on LinkedIn, social bios, or the presence of a GitHub account. Based on that, a role-specific welcome email was sent in real time that prioritized the frequently asked questions and priorities of those roles based on what they were able to learn from their own sales cycle and collaborating across departments responsible for different parts of the customer lifecycle. That's how they knew what content would connect with each persona or role From the moment that they were given the email address from the first time, they collaborated across departments to draw out those frequently asked questions for each persona that only popped up later in the life cycle. That's real-time personalization. It's not changing something to someone's name and calling it personalized. It's personalizing based on what someone wants to get out of that moment. And so by collaborating across the life cycle and thinking about the problems and questions and issues and concerns that people have further down the life cycle and then bringing them up into this welcome email, you indicate that you're able to understand the customer on a deep level and that a trusted relationship is possible here. Through this welcome email, Clearbit got a really impressive paid conversion rate from the welcome email for signing up for a freemium product. And that's pretty huge because their products aren't cheap. So they reported a 7.3% conversion rate for the marketing role, a 3.6% conversion rate for the developer role, and a 1.8% conversion rate for the sales role. Again, that's from the email that you get sent immediately after signing up for something free, and then you convert from that email to something paid. That's nearly unheard of. Now, again, segmenting like this also means that they can continue to optimize for those particular audiences and roles instead of trying to get the numbers up on a one-size-fits-all welcome email. So let me give you a couple of clear next steps, things to try depending on where you feel you are in your organization. If you're not using real-time behavior-based triggers already, then get started. If you're not sending a great welcome email, that is an excellent place to start, but you can try anything that's relevant. You can use triggers like someone viewing more than three pages on your website in one session, or sending a follow-up email after a support ticket is closed. There's always room for collaboration if you're not sure where to start. Just choose one behavioral trigger to focus on and then tailor an email to that particular situation. Automate it, track its success, iterate, and see where it gets you. If you feel you're already doing that sort of thing well, then take a hint from Clearbit and start tailoring your triggered emails more. 
Do a workshop with other departments internally designed specifically to identify the different customer and user roles at different points in the journey, and then segment and tailor your existing automated emails to reflect what you learn. Clearbit's segmentation was successful because it predicted customer needs early and gave truly useful information. So as you combine mastery of the instrument and then these concepts of improvisation and accompaniment, you can make tremendous strides towards that ideal personalized experience that creates trust between your company and your customers. But we've got one bit of mastery left, and it's all about consistency and discipline. A Love Supreme, released in early 1965, is widely considered one of, if not the greatest jazz albums of all time. It's a four-part suite that explores the depths of John Coltrane's spirituality and profound gratitude that he was experiencing at that time. See, about eight years before that, he'd been fired by Miles Davis because John Coltrane couldn't kick a drug habit. It was a wake-up call for Coltrane. He got clean, and he channeled that energy into his music and his spirituality. The power of love supreme is in its mantra. In the opening track, right after a cymbal wash and a characteristic Coltrane chromatic intro, everything fades out, and a four-note bass riff sets the stage for the entire rest of the album. These four notes become the basis for every movement and every improvisation throughout the rest of A Love Supreme, whether it was a part of the band's comping or used in the improvisation itself. In one instance, John Coltrane plays the four-note riff in every possible key. This powerful mantra was simple, memorable, and repeatable. This incredible mastery of the concept of mantra helped to communicate the complex and nuanced concept of the record, all-encompassing love and gratitude. Now, though your topics are likely a little bit less heavy than that, the concept of mantras is a really helpful way to look at staying on brand. We know that marketers are concerned about people staying on brand when they have the ability to communicate with a customer or a potential customer. But Acting as the bottleneck to prevent bad emails is not a sustainable or trustworthy path forward. Instead, high-performing marketers empower others to gain their own confidence in how they represent the brand. As Miles Davis said once, it's not the note you play that's the wrong note. It's the note you play afterwards that makes it right or wrong. So you ought not be scared that empowering the organization to use email is going to end in some big mistake. Jazz doesn't work like that, and neither does your customer experience. You need to be aligned and in touch with one another so that any wrong notes can simply be accounted for. Because you want to teach others how to comp and improvise on their own to maximize the effect of email across the entire life cycle, generating that engagement and positive metrics that we mentioned earlier. Approaching your brand as a mantra instead of a mandate means that your messaging can morph naturally for the recipient's context and every department can feel confident taking advantage of it. High performers lead the band, leveraging the trust that they've built with others, but also showcasing their own ability to adapt to these wrong notes, right? High performers 
They're the email expert in the room. They know their instrument better than anyone, but they're still constantly helping others to improve and leverage their own unique perspectives. See, your mantra acts as a shared language that's broad enough to be used in any context, but specific enough to be relevant to your brand. It should reflect your company values. It should be determined as a group across departments that make up this company and this brand itself. Your mantra, just like John Coltrane's, should be simple, memorable, and repeatable. Creating this shared language creates the space necessary for personalization without going off-brand. Everyone is able to practice reaching the customer at their own part in the journey through the lens of this mantra. So again, let me give you a case study to show you how this can work. The I Build America campaign was the brainchild of an organization that wanted their customers in the construction industry to be known and deeply understood. So they built a campaign around the humanity of these folks who were often misunderstood and misrepresented. By connecting with the purpose and meaning that drive human beings inside of the construction industry, an entire array of opportunities opened up from this simple campaign because it was genuine. To start with, it only relied on email and social media sharing because it was necessarily grassroots, and that worked. They reported 52.6% more revenue and two to three times the usual engagement. But a side benefit of that was that things like extra websites, advertisements, and merchandise easily spawned out of this simple mantra that was all about showing the humanity and the pride of construction workers. I build America. This mantra reflected the value of the company while being relevant to the people that they were serving. But again, because this mantra was simple, memorable, and repeatable, it unlocked creativity from others on the team, and critically, it enabled community-driven content. See, a great mantra can be improvised upon by your customers as well, because they get it. So try this. Come together with anyone who can send email inside of your company and create a simple set of brand guidelines, starting specifically with email. Now, keeping it simple is key if you don't feel like you have this built-in level of collaboration yet. Frame it for others by saying you want to maximize everyone else's key performance indicators, and you want to do that by sharing what makes the company unique at every stage in the life cycle to drive engagement. You want to build your mantra together. By doing it this way, instead of dictating consistency, you make it valuable for the rest of your company to leverage your brand instead of just making it a requirement. Now for a bonus, include a customer or two in this exercise. See, Salesforce is a great example of a company who does mantras so well that customers can use it freely. These concepts like connect to your customers in a whole new way, the customer success platform, Blazor Trail, Trailblazers, are all slight variations of the same customer-focused brand. And every day I see totally disparate departments leveraging this brand to reach the customers they're responsible for, and that generates incredible cohesion around the brand itself. So if you want to plot a course to B2B email mastery, follow the trail of the jazz greats. 
First, master your instrument by leveraging testing and data appropriately and finding a way to practice over and over by sending great tailored email. Segment relentlessly. Practice, practice, practice. Then master comping by supporting other departments to maximize their email effectiveness and gain their trust in the process. Then improvise with real-time triggered emails based on behavior. Create an environment in which everyone can explore and learn and grow. Finally, master the mantra. Empower everyone who sends email to leverage the company brand to get results. Bring your customers into the loop to learn from them and build a flexible, evolving email strategy that shows you understand your customers' needs and then revel in the metrics that follow. Mastering B2B email comes with dedication, consistency, and openness to new ideas. And even if you are already a master, I hope I've at least piqued your interest in rediscovering jazz culture and music, which is an absolute gift that grew and spread in spite of immense oppression. Let's honor their sacrifices with respect and admiration by giving our all to our craft, whatever that looks like. 